Hello everybody, my name is Danny Grant. I am an artist, a drawing and painting instructor. I live in Austin, Texas, and I would like to welcome you back to the studio. This is the place where I interview and talk shop with other professional artists, and we get an inside glimpse into their daily lives as professional artists. This episode is sponsored by Chelsea Classical Studios and New Wave. New Wave is a designer and producer of really awesome artist palettes and U.Go plein air pochade boxes with new products constantly on the horizon. It's run by two brothers in the Philadelphia area. On this episode is the great artist, the tireless Todd Casey. But before we get to that, I want to tell you about the new Patreon page from my favorite studio, Atelier Dojo in Austin, Texas. If you want to support an independent studio that's doing great things, offering classes, workshops, open studios, a full-time academy, you can do that by becoming an Atelier Dojo subscriber on Patreon. Okay, back to today's episode. As you will hear, Todd continues to push beyond boundaries to build an impressive career. Todd and I have been friends since our days of drawing plaster casts next to each other at the Water Street Atelier, and it is always good to catch up with him. And in honor of Todd being my guest today, you can receive 10% off your next order from Trickel.com. Just type in the code TODD10, that's T-O-D-D-1-0, to receive 10% off from Trickel. And now, without further ado, here is Todd Casey. Okay, so I wanted to touch base with my old buddy Todd Casey, who's had a ton of stuff going on lately. So, um, And I got him on the line here. So, Todd, how's it going? Good. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man. Welcome back. I think this is your third appearance here, so uh, appreciate you being here. Yeah, anytime. Awesome. Um, so, Todd, what's going on for you in this crazy, crazy time? Let's get some hot coronavirus talk going here. <laughs> well, uh, so, as you know, in the last year, I wrote a book. Um, Wait, what? And then. Yeah, right. Exactly. So I wrote a book and then, um, which I know we're going to talk about a little more in depth. And then after the book came out, uh, we edited it for a while and then we were talking about uh, a show at Ray's gallery. So I just had the show at Ray's gallery that opened February 28th, I believe it was. Yep. And that was like the day that the stock market crashed. So yeah, and you know, as like a as a painter, is kind of like my one man show, um, which is what our careers are almost geared towards. Uh, so luckily, I got the show in, but then after that, it went all digital. So, mm. so you was, had you did have like an opening, and there was an opening. It was a opening and a book signing uh, with a great turnout. Oh, sold cool. a, a ton of books. Nice. Sold a couple paintings too, which was fantastic. Congratulations! But, uh, but again. It, Thanks, man. So, but but again, it was like one of those things that you're uh, hoping for your whole career to happen. <laughs> so yeah. I'm happy that I'm happy that we pushed the show up because originally it was going to be in the fall. Mm. Um, but then it was like right as this uh, coronavirus thing kind of hit. Uh, but in addition to that, we're selling our house and moving to Connecticut. So things have just been crazy in the last. Um, Obviously in the world, but also yeah. in my own little kind of world here. We're living with the in-laws now, again. <laughs> nice. Again. This is your second stint with yeah. the in-laws? Yeah. Yeah, after Gina and I got married, 
we moved right in with them, uh, which is great. <laughs> they're 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 all awesome. um, Yeah, yeah. But now we're uh, we're in between houses, so we're waiting to close uh, one house so that we could buy the other one. We also now have a a daughter, Garland. Yes. So Scarlet, how old is she? Came now? back. Uh, she's about fifteen months. We we came back with more people than the last time. Wow. Okay, fifteen months. Nice. Walking, yeah. talking. But it was great. Yeah, she's uh, she's walking. Um, the talking is happening, but it's not any language that uh, I understand. <laughs> but it's the cutest thing in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you remember? Uh, yeah. How old Leona? She. Four now, five. Leona's five now. She's in kindergarten. She's furloughed from kindergarten right now with all of this nuttiness. Yeah. Yeah. And she doesn't oh, want yeah, to do so, any schoolwork. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, Scarlett <laughs> is uh, not um, not English that she's speaking, but the one word that she did she can say um, is highly affected by my parents, which are from Boston. <laughs> so the word she can say right now is ka. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah. Pretty awesome. Wait, we, we didn't know it until um I called my mom the other day and I said, "Mom, you know, Scarlett, she's saying ka. Did you have anything to do with that?" Cuz she was helping out big time before my show cuz it was like a marathon to, to get the painting done for it. Yeah. And they were helping out uh 3 days a week coming down from um from Boston and Oh, nice. And she said, "Oh yeah. Yeah, we were we were trying to tell her when you'd come home from wherever you'd go. <laughs> you see the car. Daddy's home in the car. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> nice. Pretty sweet. So how close is the new place going to be to where you were living? We were living 44 miles north of Manhattan. Um, mm-hmm. There's a train right down the Hudson River right into the city. Mm-hmm. We're just moving kind of on the other side where Connecticut really touches uh, Westchester. So we're getting closer to Gina's okay. work and also to the, the in-laws. So, so it's not going to be too much further, but we're getting a bigger house and uh, it's more convenient for Gina. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So how's all this stuff affecting you? Is any of this um, stay-at-home stuff really affecting you? I know you're teaching online um, as well as obviously painting and so is this yeah yeah well i mean you know the drive uh to do work these days it's been halted a little bit just to kind of see where we land with it because it was a marathon to get this painting done for the show and then Mm -hmm. naturally kind of one to two weeks after uh, for me i was exhausted so i've been taking a breather but um not a huge desire to get back in to create a lot more work because sales have kind of halted uh however I also yeah. enjoy downtime a lot because then I think about uh, very meaningful paintings that I always want to do. So sure. as much as I like to be in the studio, I like to be thinking about paintings and working through the ideas anyway. Yeah. So that is the moving the studio. Part, right? Yeah, I do. Yeah. You know, and in the book, one of the, the, the I talk about six concepts that uh, go into um, things that you have to kind of uh, think about when you're making a painting and the first one is always the idea for the painting, mm-hmm. like what's the concept. So for me, that's the thing I think about all the time. Yep. It's something that I'll either write down or I have a folder on my computer 
where I pull images and kind of get inspired or throw stuff up on the wall in my studio. Mm -hmm. So for me, downtime is, that's why it's like, I don't think artists ever really take a break from, from thinking about art. I kind of see the world through this lens. Right. I mean, you're always thinking of pictures too. Right. And like when you see objects, you're kind of uh, inspired and then where could that lead me? Could I make a good picture with it? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. So where does it so right start? Right now, downtime for that. Where does it start for you? Do you start with words, ideas, or do you start start by looking around at objects and things that you're things that you're interested in looking at, or some kind of uh, idea that you want to convey? What's where's your starting point? For me, I I say the starting point, and and it's not to limit anyone's thinking. I think um, curiosity. It's just for me. It's 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 all those things you just described. It's it's mm-hmm. writing stuff down. Mm-hmm. It's sketching. It's the act of sketching. It's the act of recording. Do you, you have know, a regular? Thinking, uh, sorry to interrupt, but do do you have a regular writing process, like any kind of a journaling thing, or just a? Um, I'm just curious if 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 you have a place where you record thoughts and if. Uh, paintings come out of that or if it's more like a sketchbook kind of a thing or both more of a sketchbook but i would say the sketchbook is more of a journal there is Mm -hmm. something of a i I don't know if you remember when i was at the um well you know we started at water street together Mm -hmm. i used to get made fun of because i had my sketchbook always with me and i was writing stuff down i was writing down everything jacob said everything cammy said Uh sam was also coming in all the time, Tim with Nesky. But then also I was learning from everybody else. So if I didn't, if I didn't know who that person was that somebody was mentioning, mm. I would write it down and then kind of go back and then be like, you know, I mean, <laughs> Google has made it just so easy to kind of uh, cross-reference anything that we, we pick up and, and uh, talking to other people. And, and I'm a big proponent of, you know, Bill Nye, or I think, um, Carl Jung even said it, is that everyone you meet knows something more about something than you do. Mm-hmm. So I was always, I still always am equipped with a pen and a, and a sketchbook. And that's why it's like, when you get that idea, write it down, it could be terrible, but it could lead to something else. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's just so many ways. And there's so many, like when you talk to other artists too, they always have a different way of thinking, which I find fascinating. Mm-hmm. And it could be something I'm not thinking of yet that I'm interested to kind of explore. Sure, sure. So for me, it's like, I'm I'm like that person who goes and, and sees a theater performance or a movie mm-hmm. and wish they had my sketchbook or a book light so I could be writing stuff down while I'm kind of in there because mm-hmm. it's kind of all always that time when you don't have the pen is the time that you're inspired. It's the worst. That's the worst feeling. Yeah. I know. Yeah. 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 I found, like, though, museums, that... I'm it, always writing stuff down. What's that? I, I'm sorry. I was just saying museums, talking yeah. to other artists, yeah. visiting them, and, and um, there's just so much, in it, and they're all kind of referenced in the book, too. I don't... Uh, but nothing's off limits. Mm-hmm. You know, go for a walk, go for a run. Running was always a great way because it's kind of... Uh, pulling your body out of the experience of the world. And then you, like, I wouldn't almost feel my feet running anymore. I would kind of be uh, looking at them 
mm-hmm. in a sense. And then your mind kind of is able to wander. Mm-hmm. That's why this, you know, social media is good and bad because it it doesn't give. Joe Rogan talks about it a lot. It's like you, you don't have the downtime to kind of work through your own thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. It's always kind of stimulated. Exactly. And but, I was, I was, you, so, yeah, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say you, I, you were going to add to it. And I, I want to hear what you had to say. Well, it was a sad thought. It was that, um, before all this social media and before I walked around with a phone all the time, I did a lot more sketching and writing in, in a book that I just carried around with me all the time. And I've, I've noticed that, you know, since, since the phone has become such a part of our lives that that a, a lot of that has has fallen away and i have to i have to be more conscious of dedicating time to that to sitting mm-hmm. down and just writing thinking sketching letting um just letting whatever kind of uh just following whatever thoughts i'm having and and seeing um just just enjoying that time of of sitting quietly and doodling and writing down thoughts um but that's yeah it's become a much more like sort of scheduled out time and it used to be i mean also obviously that comes with like you know you're just a single dude in your 20s and you just generally have a lot more time on your hands than when you're married with children and all these other things but but i miss that i miss i really miss that time um and it just like everything else, it's just become something that I have to schedule time for now, or at least at least sort of say, okay, I'm setting a time, I'm setting aside time to do that thing. But it's crucial. I mean, it's it's I need it for my sanity. So yeah, for sure. <laughs> but it, but again, I I think it's um, look, everything is a blessing and a curse. And I would say that um, as social media and these, you know iPhones and things like that have come about. I also think that they're also another way to collect data. So I also use the phone a lot. I use my phone a lot when I'm composing in my studio. I'll take a picture of uh, a setup. I'll change it a little bit, take another one. Hmm. And I used to do this a lot when I was um, working full time. So I would take photos of my setup and then leave it and then kind of come back to it and then look through my phone. And then right away, you'd know if what which one in that role was kind of the good image like which one of these five images that i just changed the lighting slightly and i couldn't see while i was in it yeah now pop out right away and you know that you want to do so that's interesting I do so think- you find the phone gives you a sort of different perspective i guess it's a, a, a i guess it becomes sort of a mediary or a, um i don't know does it strip away some distractions or something do you see the image in a little different way yeah, I think what it does is it kind of frames it for you, but it also makes it so, as you know, like one of the one of the um, things that we're continually trying to do is um, it's almost like a brain failure in a sense, where you're you're looking at something too much and you need to get away from it. Mm-hmm. So you go and you cook a meal, or you maybe you use the restroom. Mm-hmm. I garden a lot, and whatever it is to kind of distract you mm-hmm. from overlooking at something, and then come right back to it. And you go, that's it, or you yeah. go, wow, that sucks. And I was just about to go down a road where I was going to do this bad painting. So the, the phone to me acted as like, look, here's, here's the way that I was going to work. I was kind of looking at my day and saying like, well, let's plan for, uh, uh, 
success is later. So if I take some photos of this, I know I'm going to be distracted later and have to look at my phone and look at Instagram or whatever. Hmm. Why don't I look quickly at my photos and right away I'll know which one is the good one, which will then motivate me later to go paint it. Interesting. So you've built that. Yeah. So that's become part of your process. Do you always then do, you know, practice a few different setups, change the lighting, whatever, take those photos, take, let's say, five photos. Is that always, are you ever then making a decision in the moment or is that your thing? You're you're trying out different things, I, taking the photos and then sitting on it and deciding on it. Later. I do both. Okay. I do both and, and I know I kind of, you, you create this neural network of uh, remembering everything. And so for instance, some of those drink paintings, I didn't want to um, wait forever. So I'd be like, well, it's kind of cut and clear. Right. But I also want to go down the path to see what this, what, what this is going to bring me. And, and at the end of it, then reevaluate and say, did that, did that get me where I wanted to be? And then do it the other way and say, here's kind of two different ways to approach the same thing in these two different ways of thinking, which one gets me a better result. Mm -hmm. So I find that the kind of simple paintings, the poetic kind of side of it, to me, are they're pretty easy. You know, set up a couple fruit or vegetables or something like that. But when it came to building a narrative, yeah, that makes I, sense. I, yeah, I found like a key component. Uh, you could make or break a painting with one element in or out of it quickly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. so I, I think for me, I've always got like two to two to four setups going in, in my studio at all times, even though right now, you know, we're with the in-laws, so I have one setup. But as I rebuild my studio, I'm going to get that back so I can, uh, back to two to four, so I can look at a couple mm -hmm. over and over. And when I come back into that space and I say, is this still a great painting? I've looked at it four, five, so are those days two, in a row. are those two to four setups um different ideas for one painting that you want to make they're usually just different ideas okay just like if you kind of so distract yourself with one paintings or something yeah yeah and and some of them are just ideas that don't get past the beginning stage they're just this is this is dumb or i mean i would you know you want to be self so you'll set it up and just like. scrap it sometimes yeah sometimes you're just like i'm, I'm forcing it or i'm uh i'm yeah. too inspired by a Chardin that I saw or somebody else. I'm, I'm doing a version of somebody else's painting. Uh, yeah, that's than... hard, man. That's hard. That's hard because we're so bombarded with all these visuals. We're so up in everybody's space. Now we see everything. Right. Was... Doing. I worry about that, yeah, but they... then I do think about that. I definitely think about that. I also try not to worry about it too much. Um, I've heard other people talk about that same thing. Uh, I've heard comedians talk about that. Adam Carolla in particular, I've heard him talk about that a lot where Absolutely. he'll say, um, Hey man, this, this other guy's or somebody will come to him and they'll be like, Hey man, that this guy's ripping off your joke, you know? And he's, he's always been real charitable, charitable about it. His thing is like, you know, we're all funny people. We all have the, it's, it's no, it's no surprise that we're going to happen upon some of the same thoughts and, um, so he's already always had this real charitable view towards, um, you know, the possibility that someone's rip, ripping him off. And, and I kind of feel the same way about painting. You know, it's like you're going to have if you've got two artists who have similar interests um, 
And on top of that, we're constantly seeing what everyone's working on. It's kind of inevitable, I think. And I think so. Yeah. I, I agree. But I think, as uh, John Lennon said, the singer, um, amateurs, uh, professionals steal and amateurs imitate. I think there's a, there's an ability to kind of be inspired by people. And then there's the idea that, like, look, I, I, I think we'd probably agree on this, too, that, like, maybe five years ago before, or 10 years ago, when the internet was not as like big and visual as it is now, mm-hmm. um, you never heard of some of these second and third tier people. And then I've seen people just doing versions of their work where you're just, they look like they're paintings, you know, they, they want to be them part two. And I think it's a dangerous slope to go to. Yeah. I, I think, think... um, yeah, that's definitely out there for sure. And it, I guess that thing to me is sort of, it's, you're right. There's a big difference uh, between imitating yeah. and stealing. And I think, I think it's pretty obvious when you see, um, I think it's pretty obvious to right. tell, to tell what you're seeing. Is that, is that imitation or is that, is that stealing or, you know, the positive, <laughs> the positive view of stealing, I guess. Yeah. Right. I look from a legal standpoint. At, when I worked for uh, a company, uh, I won't say their name, but uh, what we would do, and this is kind of, I think, one of the things why I, I've thought about this tremendously over over time, is that we would start with a piece of inspiration and then just knock it off. And to get it through the legal team, you had to change it thirty percent. But they knew it. It was like all 30%. they wanted. How do you put a change number on that? that? Because it's a legal thing. And now legally, uh, yeah. Oh, okay. Technically, so you're not very supposed defined. to copy somebody. Yeah. Right, but it's like, but they knew that if you changed it thirty percent, you could get it through legal, and nobody would be able to tell. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the that's the. I think more people come at it that way because it's harder to come up with your own ideas and work them out than it is to kind of start with somebody else's idea and build off of. You know. Yeah, I just think, I think so much that it that it's not even conscious for a lot of people. It's right. And I'm not talking about somebody who's like painting fruit or you're, you're, um, you're inspired by Cezanne or something like, you know, somebody who said like, I think Cezanne was the one who said like, or no, it wasn't Cezanne. It was, um, Manet. I think everything that can be said with fruit painting. It's like, yeah, well, you know, everything can be said with fruit paintings. Yeah, because he's a still life painter for the most part. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, okay, maybe that's what you want to do. But then if you kind of drop that thing that's kind of holding you back from what your ideas are, I think then you'd say like, well, let me dig into me. So, for instance, when I look at your work, I go like, Danny is from Texas and he, he loved the Cowboys and we love baseball. We talk about the Rangers all the time and how they destroy the Red Sox all the time. Well, but things like that, it's like... Yeah, not that it has to make its way into your painting, but someone like Charles Hawthorne would say, um, love the painting that you're doing, you know, because you have to make your way through it. And if you don't love it, it's not going to, it's going to show at the end. And Travis Schlott had a great one. He said, um, love the painting that you're doing because it's probably going to end up, <laughs> end up on your wall anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? I, like, I like that one. Because exactly. it's, it's so true. Exactly. Um <laughs> 
Um, and that makes me feel better when somebody like Travis says that to you. So good. <laughs> but yeah, so one of the things I say in the book is, um, you know, and also in my teaching, my workshops and all my online um, online teaching through the Academy of Art University is that, you know, just uh, follow your own heart. It's, uh, it's actually a great quote that I put in the book and it actually tears me up every time I, I read it. Um, throw your heart into the picture and then jump in after it. Like this, yeah. that's where, that's where this should come from. I think that's the expressive side of it. The emotional side is, um, painting the things that you love. Yeah. And the technical side is like what we learn from our, um, our teachers, you know, maybe they can teach you a little bit of both or help you kind of, uh, think differently about it. But there's one thing I push hardcore as a teacher to just, um, paint your paintings. Don't paint mine. Right. It's yeah, that that takes time. I think. Yeah, I think it's I fine think people to start overlook and do master how, copies. Yeah, yeah, I think it's overlooked how maybe sometimes how long that can take. It's a tough. It's a tough road. The, one of the problems that I see with if you start, like let's let's take Jacob for instance, right? If I started mm-hmm. to do Jacob's paintings, right, and then I just look like part two of him. And then I went to a gallery and I showed them my work and I said, here's, here's my work. It looks like Jacob's and part two of him, whether you wanted to go there or not. If it started to sell, sometimes galleries keep you in that little box of like, you're part two. That's what you are. And then if you try to get out of it after, they kind of, they kind of want you to go back to what got you started. They want sales. Yeah, for sure. They don't. Yes. Kind of like the funny thing that we talked about with the drink paintings, right? As much as I I sometimes don't want to do them, I don't mind doing them. (laughs) Our our ideals change a lot, and I have a a family to feed, and uh, I'm not saying I'm I'm doing it just from that one perspective, and that's why I paint them, but I'm the one who brought the idea to them. Yeah. You know, and they said, yeah, it's working. You don't want to, like, change, change the thing after it's working. Yeah, of course. That's that's definitely a consideration. I mean, if you want to make a living selling paintings, you have to consider if something's working. Mm. It has to it has to cross your mind or 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 you know become a big part of your decision making uh, as far as what are you what are you going to continue to do if it's working and you're putting food on the table doing that thing, of course. Um, yeah. and I see that you're still, you're still sprinkling them in as well as branching out and, and obviously making, I think some more, some much more personal paintings or more, or, or paintings that you're more inspired by, I think. Uh, well, I guess first that's, that's a, an assumption that I'm making. Is that, do you agree with no, that? Is that true? Absolutely true. I would, yeah. I would say that in, in the idea that everything that I paint is what I want to, uh, which is, mostly true the small amount of paintings that i don't want to are really just commissions and i don't mind doing them because they're inspired by the body of work that i put out yeah that's a good point right yeah so i i yeah i did the drink paintings and i brought them to them and now they're doing really well so they want more Mm -hmm. i just need a breather every once in a while 
because there's also, there's a very narrative side that I'm always trying to layer in my work, which is inspired by music, Mm -hmm. inspired by theater, inspired by everything. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's just like, you kind of have to go with where your heart is at the time. I think follow it. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, that's what my, my new show at the gallery, which is just called the art of still life, something very open of a concept and uh it's a title it's of a little concept. bit of narrative yeah exactly and it was kind of like originally i wanted to have a lot of the artists in the show but we also wanted to push it up so we could do a book signing mm-hmm. uh, which i'm happy about now because i don't know kind of where we're going to be in three to six months with all this stuff going on but um luckily i was i was able to have the show mm-hmm. but for the most part I, I paint all the things i want to do yeah. So how did this? So they had to close the gallery, obviously, because of all this virus stuff. Um, how has that affected sales? Or I guess it's a hard thing to sort of know for sure, but obviously it's had an effect, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, opening night we had a couple. We had three sales, which is good. I think yeah. there was twenty-something paintings. A lot of them are small. Mm-hmm. Um, I always do small paintings. Talk about big ones because I think you've done that pretty well, offering different price points with your work. Is that something you've done? You in the gallery have have talked about and done consciously. Oh yeah, it's definitely something I um, and it ties back into kind of what we were talking about with inspiration and working out ideas. Is that uh, again, once it gets past that initial stage of like this looks good in my studio, now it's like you draw the thing onto the canvas, whether it's quick or, or slow. I usually do a study. Mm-hmm. So my studies make it so that I spend time in there and I still have to love it past that stage as well. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like every 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 oh, part of this has like... I didn't think about yeah, that. It's like, so how, how often have you done a study and then said, mm, no? Too often. I really? mean, I usually do two to three studies for every big painting. Okay. And I don't do a lot of big paintings because... To me, the big ones are like the award winners. Those are like the the ones I'm trying to like knock it out of the park, and the mm-hmm. small ones are getting me towards like let's get all let's get through the picture making and the ideas, and uh, some of these will fly and some of them won't. But uh, it it gives are, me that ability. Are you still? Because you sell a lot of those smaller sketches. Are a lot of those ones that were ideas that you had? that didn't make it to a bigger canvas, but you're still selling that smaller sketch. Exactly. Yeah. Nice. I mean, that's so for a, me, that's a, a great business decision. It is. And it kind of fits in with it, a great business decision. Um, it, like, I think I, I arrived there, not uh, starting there. It was kind of like, I always have a lot of ideas and I work them out visually. And if they can't make it past the six by eight or six by nine, sometimes a little bigger, sometimes a little smaller mm-hmm. stage and they're not awesome and my heart's not in and I'm not going to, I mean, it, I'm sure you've had the experience where you're, I, I have a couple paintings that I keep in my studio that I got halfway through and then just was, was like, I don't want to do this. Yeah. And you're either going to kind of push your way through it and then hope to uh, have a good painting on the end. Or for me, I just kind of stopped them and said uh, something about this didn't, didn't resonate and yeah i keep them on the wall to to remind myself that not everything that i'm going to do is going to be great but um make those 
put your heart into and time into those good ideas. Mm-hmm. And whatever way that we all work them out, it's just the way I work them out. I still have a stack that the world has never seen, which will probably turn <laughs> into firewood. <laughs> yeah, I have boxes of stuff that it's hard to get rid of something that you painted, but they don't, they're not worth, they don't need to be ever seen. And so they'll probably, I think at some point I'll probably look at, and they're like taped up. I just stuck all the paintings in there, taped up the box. I think at some point I'll probably just go pick up that box and throw it in the garbage. Yeah, well, call me first. <laughs> trade. trade a okay. couple bad paintings. Oh, but we should do, do that. Remember... We should definitely do that. Let's trade bad paintings. Yeah. <laughs> do you remember going in the back, though, in Jake's studio? And I remember he had like a floor to ceiling of a bookshelf, and it was all studies. And I thought, how fantastic. Like, mm. And you'd pull them out and look at them one by one, and his were, you know, a little more of the, like, figurative ones with snow faces they were like kind of wormy looking things yeah but like right how fantastic is it that you you were like all right i need to do a bunch of these to get to the good stuff yeah and then we only see the good stuff but nobody not everybody sees the amount of work i think it was michelangelo that said it was like his quote is that um if they knew how hard i worked they wouldn't be impressed right? yeah yeah it's, it's like, so true i know it's like yeah you always have um Right. You always get comments like, oh, man, boy, I wish I could just so do easy. that thing that you yeah. do. Like, yeah, but you don't know how long I've been doing this and how many terrible drawings I've made. And um, I know. And the obsession that comes with it. I mean, I think about painting all the time. Everything I do is revolved around some way, some way of thinking or extracting a piece of data to then possibly put into an idea. Mm-hmm. You know, wherever you're at, you're just like, all right, I didn't think of it that way. Can I analyze it? Should I record that? Should I write it down? Mm-hmm. Uh, throw it on the wall? Yeah. It is an obsessive pursuit for sure. And yeah, I think I. that's that's the thing is it's like you have to be obsessed and it has to be you have to love it at that level. And yeah, I think it was that's I guess that's Robert Henry. Where, yeah. Uh, Todd, how are you coming up with you're constantly <laughs> citing all these quotes. Do you have like huge books of quotes that you mull through on a daily basis? No, I'm not that good. Um, <laughs> I do have a, a good memory. As you remember, I used to be able to remember all the I still have all the like bad commercials from when I was a kid stuck in my head. Oh, gee. But um, yeah, man, they're just yeah. so bad. I oh, remember Aisung used to come up to me and she would say a song and I would just rap the whole thing to her and she'd be like, <laughs> what the heck happened to you? And it's like, I don't know if that portion of my brain got uh, used up and now it's just full of nonsensical uh, hip hop lyrics from the 90s. <laughs> I think so. But I've, uh, I've got a bunch of like uh, like car dealership commercial jingles in my head. and um... Yeah. Yeah. The G.I. Joe theme song when I was a kid. I don't know why. Yeah, of course. My wife jokes all the time about other stuff. But the Robert Henry quote is, um, and I put it in the book. I mean, look, when you write a book, and I I had to edit it. I Someone like Jordan Peterson, when he wrote, wrote his book, he wrote, wrote a book called Massive Meeting. He mm-hmm. said he rewrote the book, I think, 50 times. Oh, my God. Because he took the sentence 
And there's actually another um, another thing I've heard from another person saying very, something very similar. If you if you take the if you take and you write out take your writing and then rewrite it out, right? Mm-hmm. And then I think it was a, uh, a friend of mine, a Danish friend, who said it. And then you take that and then you type it on a typewriter. There's no way that you're going to write the same sentence out mm. badly three times. So you're going to have oh, gone so there's a it. natural sort of editing process that's that's always sort of running in the background, I guess. Yeah, and it's kind of like like I I took a workshop with Tony Ryder um, two summers ago now, mm-hmm. and I was in there writing every word. I took sixty pages of notes in there, and nobody oh else. I didn't see a lot of people writing stuff. Yeah, but the reason why I do it. The reason why I started to do it was when I was in grad school. I, when they turned the lights off, I would fall asleep. And right. I thought, either I need some really strong coffee or I need to figure out a way to stay awake. So mm-hmm. I wrote everything down. Hmm. And then at the end of the class, I was like, man, I don't even have to study because I got it. So for me, it was a way to kind of retain. Nice. Yeah. So, so when I wrote the book, I had a, a ridiculous amount of quotes. I mean, there's a ton of moving parts. And the quotes that go into the book are very well thought out. But the Robert Henry quote was, I'm, I'm not looking for art as a way to make a living. It's a way to see the world. Mm-hmm. And I think that the kind of goes back to what me and you were saying about kind of obsession. It's like, you don't, you don't go to a job of being an artist. The way that you see things, it kind of forces you into this way of thinking, I think. Yeah. Or picture making. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you must be, I, I oddly, I, I see myself sometimes staring at people on the subway in Manhattan, uh, thinking like, wow, what an interesting face, you know, in a beautiful way. It's a object of beauty, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that interesting getting obsessed <laughs> with, um, with, because I don't do this all the time, but I've recently made paintings purely based on well maybe not purely but a lot based on um setting something up setting up a couple of objects and just falling in love with the lighting effect that you get right now it's this like reflected light off of surprise surprise a baseball that I'm pretty obs- obsessed with um in this painting that just and I never would have thought, I never would have thought, I don't know, I didn't, that's not where it started for, for me, but that's kind of where it's become, is just getting obsessed and so mesmerized by uh, visual effects and just wanting mm-hmm. to be able to capture that thing, just being so enamored with that little effect of light and and um but it's become so kind Fantastic. of i don't know what you know um it used to be so much more about some grand epic idea and i still want to that's still in there but i don't know for now it's 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 those those smaller things i Simple guess things, yeah yeah. Well, it's it's like uh, it's like once you once you're in something for a long for a long time. Let's say it's just tasting wine 
then you have a much deeper respect for the tiny, mm. small hints of the yeah. note, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it's just that that challenge, too, of, like, can I be... How can I be as satisfied with this painting as I am at looking at this thing in real life? And you, I mean, you almost never, obviously you never, you can't match what you're seeing in reality with uh, paint and a canvas and, and brushes. But it still <laughs> becomes a new thing, obviously. It becomes a different becomes a different thing that's inspired by that right um and i guess uh, that that thing is just endlessly exciting to me that challenge of of trying to make it as incredible as you see it in real life that that mm. i guess that's the thing that drives me so much yeah that, well, and, i just can't and, get enough of it yeah and that's never fantastic. boring it's never old yeah, and that's the the beauty of it all is that we all come at this from different angles for whatever reason, and that's why I, I try not to tell anyone what they should paint, why they should paint. Some people do it for depression. Some people do it because they're bored. Some people do it uh, for the love of it. I, I meet people from all across the spectrum, and uh, it brings joy to everybody. And mm -hmm. can't tell people what to paint, but why they want to paint them. Just if it means something to you, you don't even have to know why. You just want to paint the thing. Paint it. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, for sure. Uh, you, I agree. I, I become obsessed with light, too, which is why in, in the book, one of the chapters is on light. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, and it's not even so, I think, uniform of a chapter. I mean, I go over kind of the concepts and terminology of uh, how we see light, why we see it, um, some of the terminology to really help define it what you're looking for like the terminator and the accent shadow mm -hmm. but then there's also the idea that like light could also be a way to compose pictures as well which is mm -hmm. one of the hard things about the paint uh, writing the book is that there's these overlapping chapters and you're trying to take and simplify the information for everybody but how can i not put light in with color right because it's, it's about everything that we observe yeah of course then also how can you not put shadow shades in with composing because they have mm -hmm. to do with chiaroscuro, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the hard things about that book was um, where everything should be compartmentalized. And I, and I knew it's almost like at a point you're, you're like, I know I'm going to get flack for it from somebody, but I still have oh, to yeah. put it out there. Yeah. But it's the same kind of thing. It's like, somebody's going to have some snarky thing to say about a painting you did. And it's like, who cares, man? Um, I know. But there's the same person who didn't put in. I mean, man, I got to say, when I got that book, I was just blown away by. Um, it was evident how much work had to go into that. And I was really blown away by um, just the, the quality of it's incredible. I mean, the, the writing, the. Um, yeah, I loved how you had. How, how every painting illustrated uh, a certain idea that you were uh, talking about. Well, that's the toughest part for me was, um, I mean, look, so to backtrack a little bit, when I first started this book, the first thing I had to do, I, I'll give you a little bit more of the backstory on it. So Ken Salas wrote his book, right? Yeah. Um, Landscape painting. 
Ken was coming to my house because he knew that I, I could work in Photoshop and Illustrator, and Ken's not super familiar with that stuff. Mm-hmm. So he said, would you be interested in doing illustrations for my book? And I said, I'd be more than happy to help you out. I thought, fantastic oh, wow. that my friend, friend got this book. So when he was here, I had done landscape painting at the Academy of Art when I was in grad school with Bill Mon. Uh-huh. And he, he was basically bouncing ideas off me at a, at a certain point of like, oh, that's interesting. And, and then it ended up being like, so here's the illustration I think. Do you think it would work here? And I would get my feedback. So there Ken came a point where that? he was coming Ken, yeah, he was coming yeah. by every week, and then he was like, "You should write a book because <laughs> the way you the way you explain it makes sense." And he's like, "You should if you ever got the opportunity, do a still life book." Fast forward, I think four, three or four months later, he later he just called me out of the blue and he said, "Look, there's an opportunity. They're looking for a still life painter. Can you can you get some sample chapter?" And you you know Ken, he's very aggressive. He said, "Write it now. Do it." Don't wait. And I, and I remember I was driving to Boston because I was doing the uh, teaching at Mass College of Art. And I said, yeah, okay. And I thought like, you know, after you get off the phone, it was like a three-hour drive each way. And I thought, I could probably put together a sample chapter. I spoke to the editor over there. Yeah. I told her my, my idea was to uh, get them a sample chapter. I think it was Thursday. I spoke to her and I said, um, I, I'll have a sample chapter to you by Monday. And oh I remember God. she was like, and she, yeah, and she was like, you don't need to do it that quickly. And I said, <laughs> no, it sounds like you guys are need one now. So I'll just do it. And then I just, uh, I remember I just hunkered down and wrote the thing. Jesus. And I wrote it. My sample chapter was on light. Um, and then she, I guess she was impressed with it because I also laid it out in um, Adobe InDesign. Wow. And then. Yeah, and then like the feedback was like, ah, oh, they love your, they love it. They're just waiting because you also, I also had to put together what book it would compare to in the market already. Hmm. Um, my favorite choose? book. Um, to me, the more I, that's the part of the thing I didn't want to do was <laughs> like trying to. I don't have a still life painting book, and I right. think that was kind of where I went with the whole thing. Is like I don't have a still life painting book that I could recommend to a student and I teach it. But for me, it was always like a bunch of pieces of other books put together. Hmm. So my idea was to like, why not compile kind of all the information I know extract from everybody and then make my book the way that I would, I teach it. Yeah. So for instance, someone like Andrew Loomis's books were fantastic. Uh, mm-hmm. Juliet Aristides did beautiful books. Yeah. Um, Rockwell on Rockwell was a fantastic book. Um, Ted Seth Jacobs, mm-hmm. Life of the Artist. Yeah. So I kind of like was picking pieces from all these good books. Bill Mon had a fantastic book called Drawing the Head. But it mm-hmm. didn't necessarily have to be just objects either. It was it was like how, what makes a good book and what makes a bad book. So I, I ended up pulling pieces of like, well, this works because uh, the illustration helps with the concept, right? So the famous artist course was another one I was looking at. Mm. That was by Norman Rockwell and Albert Dorn, uh, Robert Fawcett, and a bunch of these other illustrators uh, in the 50s and 60s that were doing this kind of take-home course out of Westport, Connecticut. Do you have a so copy I, of that, I, or have you seen have you seen that? I do. I do. You have yeah. a copy of it. I mean, well, that's the thing. Yeah, I do. I have. Oh, uh, I've, I've one from my. I think the second printing, but I had oh. been 
collecting all this information as a teacher for years yeah. to then kind of make photocopies and give to students and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So I had already kind of started to whittle it down. And I don't know if you remember, but I think about seven or eight years ago, we had a discussion about putting a book together called The Methods and Materials of Atelier Drawing and Painting. Yeah. So a lot of these ideas had already been started. And I think just having all that time in the middle to think about it is really what, and then how, teaching. How deep had you gone, um, let's say seven or eight years before, had you ever written out like what could essentially be, you know, basically a, um, a, a chapter outline for a book? Like had, had you ever sat down and really kind written of. out a lot I of had... this stuff or... Well, I had a a, a sad version of of a book, which was not this book, but it was more of like the Atelier. You know, um, there's a book out there by um, um, man, I forget his name. I was going to say Albert Dorn, but it's not. It's um, it's called the 19th Century French Academic Tradition. Mm. Um, And uh, man, it'll come to me. Okay, but um. Basically, and it kind of outlines the four-year programs at these 19th century right. academies. Is that the which one that's like, like we $900 or something on Amazon? It's something, I think it's, it probably is one of the first editions, but I think you can find it used for anywhere from 50 to 200 Okay. Uh, but I had kind of outlined this book of like what that training was because I didn't feel like, I mean, there's the bar plate, right, that everyone knows about. Yeah. But um, there wasn't much more. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm Googling it right now. Uh, it's like Al something or man. It's so weird. Cause I say it to my students all the time. Um, sorry. Yeah. Forgive my Google. You're close. Oh yeah. I, that's I, it. I, yeah. Albert Boyne. That's what yeah, it was. Right, Albert right, Boyne. Right. right. Yeah, the, the Academy in French, French painting of the 19th century. Yeah. So I kind of wanted this idea of like, could you, could you model that book? with the famous artist course, which was clear and concise. Mm. That's why Loomis is so good because it's like so clear what he's saying and he's watering it down into, not watering it down so bad, but making it so clear there's almost no room for misinterpretation. Yeah, which is incredibly important when you're trying to convey information. (laughs) Yeah, so like, exactly, as a teacher, it's like you're not going to get up there and dazzle them with your knowledge. You're going to bring it down to a level that they can understand it Mm. and then layer on them more constantly more crazier concepts on top of it. Mm-hmm. So something like Ted Seth Jacobs I found was like way out there. I mean, the, mm. the models helped more than the writing, the writing His models are so a... good. Yeah. The models are, yeah. I, I learned so much from, from the models in his book, the little illustrations of, of light and everything. And what was so funny is that exactly. I was like, Whoa, this is what uh, Jacob drew on my paper. Like, <laughs> exactly yeah exactly so and then it was so it was, I, I it was cool to was... see a lot of a lot of that same stuff show up uh in your book so it was like yeah well, exactly. this is a real kind of um the continuity here between all of the you know generations of of thinking about these things i thought was really cool to see in the book yeah and i and i tried to get that uh, to make sure that everyone got their due of like thank you to all my instructors and then i put the newton quote which is i can i can see further because i stand on all the giants that have come before me right mm-hmm. it's not like i'm putting out all this information and everyone goes like 
what a genius. It's kind of like, <laughs> no, these are, these are everybody who I know that we talk right. about a lot and we've kind of perfected them as a group. So, yeah. So anyway, back to the, back to the proposal. I ended up doing the proposal, I think it was April. And then that's actually when I found out that uh, my wife was pregnant <laughs> and wow. I knew that kind of yeah. the due date was December. I think it was like December 27th to 31st. And I, I remember I was like at home all summer, uh, almost like refreshing my email to be like, just give me a yes or no. And I remember there was a point <laughs> where I was like, I'm going to email them and just say, I can't do it. Um, I think it was like mid August, just going like, just say yes or no. Yeah. I can't wait. Right. Because, uh, so they ended up, I think it was August 21st. They said, yes. And then they uh, sent me the contract and then I had to go to my lawyer and talk to them and, I didn't start the project, to, I think, till September. Maybe it was like the end of August, beginning of September. And I know I had about four months to write it. Oh, my God. So I wrote that book. And so here's the thing. I wrote it with the idea that my daughter was going to, well, we didn't know what we were gonna, it was going to be a boy or a girl. So we were waiting on the birth of the child, expecting it to be the end of December. But she ended up coming out early. Hmm. on December 10th, which was my wife's birthday. So she oh, decided wow. she wanted that. to come early. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, that's cool. Yeah. And the other weird thing is I'm, I'm born on my dad's birthday. So it's kind <laughs> of like, funny. yeah. Huh. So when that happened, I had, I had to ask, ask for an extension. And in the contract, I kind of had it worked out that I had, I could have an extra 30 days. But even... What would have happened even, if you didn't, if you were like halfway through at the, at the deadline? Like what? It seems like a deadline for that's an arbitrary thing. Like, I think so. But what they were trying to do is try to get that book out by the fall mm-hmm. to be able to edit it and then do everything they need to do on their end mm-hmm. and then design it. Okay. So, and I said that's a great time because if we can get it out for the holidays, win-win. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. But what happened was my daughter came early. I said, "Can I have another month? So can I get this to you at the end of?" Uh, January, they said sure, and uh, and I hit the deadline. Um, now nice, to back up man. a little bit more, the way I started to think about the whole concept of the book was I I took my old animation kind of way of breaking up an idea, and I I took out like eight pieces of foam core, and mm-hmm. then I just started writing down all these ideas on stickies, and then mm-hmm. I put them on each each board in order of like how could I present this information to the audience that would make sense so that it would add on top of the thing that they've read before right and that's where I started with um, you know obviously I start with like the fun stuff like the intro and my story uh, but beyond that it's like here's the here's the materials here's how to take those materials and set up your studio Mm-hmm. And then I talk about kind of the six principles and that's just what it is you want to paint. Cause I believe that the idea should come first. I know some, some of the way that we were trained was like draw or paint the crap out of something and then figure out what background you want to put. <laughs> um, which to me is like, it just seemed weird. It seemed like kind of backwards way of working. So I thought concept, um, which also leads with inspiration, ways of being inspired and then on top of that, I think it was like composing. So composition is probably my favorite chapter in the book because it's what I 
I really pride myself on and I spend a lot of time thinking about doing. Mm-hmm. And then it was lighting. Because after you had the setup, once you had the props, then you composed them and then you lit the setup. Yeah. And then you drew from the setup and then you had to know what color was and then you thought about form. Mm-hmm. So that's, and, and there's definitely different ways I could have um, changed the whole book up too. I thought like, ah, it, so much stock went into it. So well, the other thing that I was yeah. doing at the time was teaching at Mass Art in Boston. So I would lose a day every week, but it was good because it, I didn't put the radio on and I just thought about the book for three hours, six mm. hours, essentially. Nice. Six, at least six hours. Yeah. To just think about, um, am I doing it correctly? You know, am I missing anything? So, so that downtime to me helped out big time. Yeah. Make it articulate. That makes total sense. Yeah. I can keep going on, but, you know. No, no, it's, I mean, you could have, you could have nitpicked the order and all of that thing, like, probably forever. Um, (laughs) I think you came, yeah, you came up with a great, uh, the, the final product, uh, you know, I think, I think all of that just makes perfect sense. It's just put together so well, and um, I think that kind of goes along with sort of making a painting in that at some point you have to just go forward and say, okay, this is what it's going to be. Yeah, put put it out in the world. Yeah, and you can play around with composition and and all of that for, you know, for eternity, but um, at some point you got to move forward with whatever you're working on, so... Uh, mm-hmm. I, man, it's just, it's just, um, I don't know. I'm just impressed. And, um, well, there was, was so more cool. too. Yeah. There's one more chapter in that book, um, which is really just kind of what underpaintings are. So I needed to give them a little bit of technique yeah, and the ideas like... of like, yeah, it's just like, how does paint work? Cause originally that was at the beginning of the book, but when we edited it, we put it at the end as like right before you do the step by step. Mm-hmm. So and then it ends with a step by step at the end, but but also it's like what is paint? How is it properly layered? Um, what are the two principles of it? You know, the binding agent and the pigment, which is really just what makes any medium its medium. Mm-hmm. And then like what are underpaintings do? Can you do a grisaille? Can you do an open grisaille? Closed grisaille? But then in every concept, just like you said, I, I then had to take and say, okay, so I had asked you to give me a uh i think three to five painting mm-hmm. i then had to say like here's the concept that i'm writing for this chapter yeah what images do i have that can support these concepts mm-hmm. so it didn't turn into just a coffee table book it ended up being like sure i believe your your beautiful painting of the um the sailor right ended yeah. up being in the light chapter mm-hmm. and that had to do with uh sh- shadows right. falling almost like lit from the side Right. which to me is a fantastic way because a lot of these schools that I go to teach at only have the light picked in one position and then they put the still life in and then it's always the same light source. Yeah. But when you start to move it around, you start to really pay attention to the light because you're thinking like, I have to render objects through the light most facing plane, mm-hmm. right? And uh, it ends up being just a compositional factor as well. 
Yeah, that's so much more fun was, for me. I think so too. I, I always say, you know, like I think I use, I think it was maybe Jeff Larson painting in there, yours, um, mine. And mine was an accidental thing where I accidentally hit the light one time and I was doing a painting of a pumpkin and it, and it knocked it. So it, it <laughs> lit it from the bottom up and then it yeah. gave it this creature double feature kind of look. And I yeah. thought, well, that's more fitting of a creepy yeah, painting. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like, can you make the light source go with your concept? Mm-hmm. And especially if it rings true with the, the image too. So, and then there, at the end, there was supposed to be uh, an epilogue. An epilogue to me was going to be kind of this like positive way to just leave everyone with the book. Now, yeah. the, the when I did the when I did the um, when they gave me what their expectations were from the book in the form of a contract, they said that they wanted two hundred and eight pages, and they wanted sixty five thousand words, and I think it was like four hundred images. I think I gave them eighty thousand words, which is typical. You kind of give too much. And then I think it was, um, I didn't know how many pages cause it's so hard to tell. Yeah. But I also laid out half the book in the InDesign cause I need to see how the word and the image were going to go together. So I have my own version of the book I did. Did they take that but, from you and, and, and work from it or did, did they have their own in-house person do all that over again? Actually they had their own yeah. and, and, and I told them like, don't let this, if you want it, you can have it but I don't want to design the book. I mean, I, I made it clear I didn't want to do it and they didn't want me to do it, but they thought it was fascinating that I was kind of thinking holistically of like, you know, it's either that or you do a word document and then you say, refer to image 12 in the folder. <laughs> and it's like, you can't see them together. That must have been a huge, I, also, I mean, there's definitely, so how different did the final version come out to what you put together? I think, Honestly, there was a, a point where I was like, I'm sure they'll do a good job. I, I told them from the beginning, all the books that I've seen them do, are, are they blow me away because of how good the printing is, yeah. how well designed it is, uh, the typeset. Everything is just fantastic. Yeah. And I said, the last thing I want to do is um, kind of oversee the whole thing. I, I told Victoria, who was the editor, I said, I trust that you all will do your jobs really well. And, um, and we all bring our own professional experience to it. So I don't want to be the one who's going to like tell everybody that's terrible or, you know, I don't want to direct. I want to be like, I, I understand what you bring to the table and, and and I know you're going to do a good job. And I, and I, they blew me away even more than my expectations with it. And that made it so I could just focus on the content. I did every, I did 99.9% of the illustrations in the book. So I created them all in Photoshop or Illustrator. The other huge task in the book is that I had to, I had to contact every artist and have them sign a release form. <laughs> and then also they wanted, I think, uh, a bunch of images from uh, masters who had passed away, right? So someone like Emil Carlson or... Hofstra Pushman are two of my favorites that are in the book. I had to contact these museums, and if they weren't in museums, uh, track them down and then get them to give me permission to print them. And that was like Ugh. a task in itself. Yeah, I can yeah. imagine. Ugh. Get finding the yeah, right so, person to contact, getting them to write you back, all of the... Exactly. So yeah. I ended up having um, an assistant, Linda Lutzai, 
and oh, nice. she helped me out. She was one of my students and she's fantastic. And she's cool. very, very thorough and would, um, I'd say like, Hey, if I had to be like, here's, here's a, uh, more images than I need, track yeah. these down and find out how much the price is because I also had a small budget yeah. and said, let me know what we can get for free. And then what we have to pay for, um, and look, did at they the end give of the you day, any? Did they give you any upfront money to do any of that stuff with? They give me a advance on my um, uh, what call it on my sales, advance on my um, royalties. So they that, don't really. So give that's you basically money. coming out of money. your. So so essentially, you had to pay for all this stuff. Yeah, and the question then ended up being, do I? Do I make the book in the image that I wanted to, or do I only get free stuff? And right. I chose to, I kind of used all of the money just to make the book the right way. As I mean, kind of at the end of the day, I, I didn't really see much from it, yeah. but I'm just happy because the book is, uh, it, to me, it's a piece of our work in itself. Yeah, for uh, sure. I'm very happy with it. And I hope it, it sounds like it's coming across. Some, a lot of people have written me that they love it. Yeah. A couple weird emails. Oh. <laughs> Some people want things clarified. Weird how so? <laughs> um, it's just the way that the world is now. <laughs> just like on Instagram, I get random people that are like, you stink or whatever, you know, and it's like, <laughs> I take the time out of the day to write that. Like, you know, I, I didn't get anything like that. Yeah. Like the book is terrible. You stink, just, uh, Casey. Yeah. But there's a couple typos we didn't catch. I've gotten those emails, which I, I actually oh God. Uh, am super thankful that people have caught that because in the second printing, it sounds like uh, I got an email from the editor Yeah. Um, this morning. I was checking in. She said, on the business front, your book's doing so well, we might be out of stock very soon. So, nice. Oh, yeah. That's I mean, awesome. and we did a, a print of 5,000, so mm-hmm. pretty incredible. I, I, I'm just uh, elated that... Um, the, it's been so positive. Everyone loves the book, and everybody I've shown it to, um, and I've had several students uh, buy it themselves, and uh, everybody's super impressed. Great, it's yeah. so cheap on. I mean, Amazon strong handles the market, and they've got it for like twenty five bucks. I mean, oh for twenty five bucks for this book. Not that I'm trying to sell everybody in your audience on it, but for twenty five dollars, <laughs> I mean. That is a it, deal. We had man. agreed on it's, it's yeah. Yeah, we had agreed on two hundred and eight pages. This book is three hundred and twenty. And they didn't raise the price. Dang. I don't Yeah. Crazy. Wow. Was there anything that you um what didn't make the cut? Was there anything that you were disappointed about not being in there? Like did not you really. have any other no. chapters or any any other content? I did. Well, so what happened once the book was uh, given to the editor, uh, I had to give him the whole package of, you know, release forms and all that stuff and high-res images in, in the correct order. So I had a number of them as well. Uh, and there was, I think there was like, I don't know, there has to be like 700 images in there. I, it then goes to the editor. So the, the fascinating thing, and this is why like serendipitously, I don't know how this happened, but the editor was this gentleman by the name of James Waller and mm-hmm. James fantastic guy um, with, we would set up a time pretty much every other week and we'd kind of go through each chapter 
or like a portion of it for two to three hours. And then uh, he'd be like, all right, well, let's uh, finish this next time. Here's a bunch of things I need you to get. And then we went back and forth for a long time. And then there was a part in the book where, you know, I have all my drink paintings in there. And um, so James and I were, were talking. And he said, well, did you know that I wrote a book on, um, on drinks it's <laughs> called uh, uh, Drinkology? Uh-huh. I know. I think it is Drinkology. He, he wrote a book called Drinkology. And it's like a number one bestseller. And I thought, I think I've seen that book. Yeah. Yeah. It's been reprinted in like William Sonoma and um, they're, they're like five printings of it. So I was like, James, how weird is it that you're the editor of that book? And I did all these drink paintings. So I said, would you be interested in in writing a book that I would, um, I've always wanted to do a cocktail recipe book. I said, would you be interested in writing it? He said, that sounds like a fantastic idea. So that's where we're at. We're actually pitching it right now. Sweet. But I just man. thought, like, oh, that's awesome. how did that? How did that work out? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pretty awesome. No, that's so he, he was fantastic, and he kind of took all my text and just tightened it up. Um, there's and it was great because I had um, shown the text to I think four or five students, um, and Doug Flint as well. And oh, cool. Doug, Doug, uh, Doug really kind of beat that text up, or, or not in a bad way, in a great way. Yeah, he made sure that it was like the wording worked and that um, it was accurate. And then he actually um, helped me through a couple of concepts that I had pretty well, but we kind of nailed and especially in the light. Nice. Yeah, he's Lighting. definitely the guy to go to for that. Yeah, so I, I definitely wanted him to read the light and the color chapter because he's most yeah. influential in those two things for me. Mm-hmm. And um, he really firmed that, those two things up drastically for me now james didn't get almost the whole drawing chapter i think it was like half of it he didn't get so we had to redo that um what do you mean he didn't the whole it was just the way by like the way that the word and the images were going together Mm. i had i had photos that were showing kind of like what triangulation was yeah and he was like i just don't get it why don't you show a drawing with it with the photos and i said okay then i felt like i have more work yeah. At this point, it's like now the baby's like two months old, and I'm <laughs> trying to redo a whole chapter. Oh man! Yeah, but he, um, it was good because I had my audience had been artists, and now he was like he's kind of an artist. He paints, but uh-huh. he's he's kind of like an outside perspective that was like reading the book and not getting it. And I thought, well, it has to be clear for everybody. Then yeah. it then it's even better, and um, and then. He, uh, he met he was awesome yeah the book i don't think i don't think the book would be what it is without any of these people the editor victoria craven jenny mm-hmm. k beale i think was the one who designed it she did fantastic yeah um james and uh and then we had a everybody who read it my wife read it over twice i think my mother-in-law read it over um linda read it over dorothy lorenz read it over, uh, Doug, and then Lori Gantz. They cool. just they just beat the crap out of it if they could, you know? And yeah. it, it just made it more bulletproof. Yeah. Which I still think it's like, there's still probably a couple concepts which I get from people that are like, not quite sure I get this. But then there's also the emails I've been getting too are just, I 
don't use this terminology, but yours makes sense. Hmm. You know, which, um, you know, I come from many different schools. The Academy of Art taught that Core Shadow was what we call the Terminator. Right. And it's not. It's the core of the shadow. It's kind of like the whole mass of the shadow would be considered the Core Shadow. Mm-hmm. So I could see, and also the highlight and the light most facing plane are the other two things I think they, so even in Juliet's book, I think she has the highlight showing that the highlight and, the, and light most facing plane are together, mm. which to me is just always super confusing. Yeah. I mean, I made it a point not, not, not uh, thinking about her book at all. I think her book's fantastic. She was actually the one on the, uh, the ones that I was uh, inspired by. I said, yeah, she made a clear con- and cohesive book, but, um, was that the same the publisher? Order, I guess, is different. Well, it was the same editor that was okay. Watson Guptill, but she oh okay she actually moved over now, and I think Watson Guptill stopped doing the art books, and now Monticelli has started to kind of take over as the art books. But okay. they were just uh, bought out by Faden or Faden. Uh-huh. So uh, even more room. I maybe I may do a couple more books. I don't know. Nice man. That's really yeah, cool. So there were, a, yeah, go ahead. There was there was pretty much like I think two chapters that got cut and uh I can't remember one of them, but I know that the epilogue would have been to me awesome. Mm-hmm. And that was just um it's kind of like what the the quotes do in the book. The Joseph Campbell like use the rules, don't be used by the rules. Yeah. Things like that, you know, find your own bliss. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, find the things that you want to paint. This is your kind of sanctuary. Like yeah. I have a door that I close and it's, it's my world. Yeah. Things yeah. like that. Don't be afraid by um, failures. Failures lead you to, um, you know, breakthroughs. Jacob would say it all the time. He'd say, if you're frustrating, then uh, you're probably about to have a breakthrough. Yeah. That's a hard the- one. That's, that's one of the most important things. And to me, one of the hardest things to to convey to people because, um, you know, yeah, don't no give one, up for sure. No one, yeah, it's a visual medium, and and it's painful to see something to struggle and see it not work. Um, and that's one of the hardest things to get people to fight through or to believe in. To believe in the fact that the 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 fact that you're struggling here means that you're you've hit a you've hit a wall um and the only thing to do is is to keep going and break through that wall mm-hmm. but it's so defeating i think for for most people and it's a hard thing it's a hard thing for them to push through unfortunately what's well, a recalculation because it means that the course that you were on wasn't working right right and it's just can you regroup and then um rethink yeah so I think we all had to kind of do that because you and I came from the Academy of Art yep. and no knock on them, but I think that a would totally have led you down a different working. road. Yeah. Yeah. So when I came, I mean, that's why I tell my story because my whole story is like this whole shedding of my ego that I had. And it wasn't a big ego. It was just that I thought I was good. And I, uh, I went to Jacob with pride to show him my work and he kind of said, eh, <laughs> not that great. You know, and it's kind of a, a good story because it shows you that um, maybe you have to rethink everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and that's it's, what I had to do. Yeah. 
And I remember going in there that first time. Um, uh, you know, I talk about he sent me on a mission to go to a castrong. I didn't know what it was. Yeah. And then I went to the GCA, and it was kind of like in Star Wars where there the cantina scene where it's like you see all these <laughs> aliens and people that are on this this uh, adventure that you kind of uh, want to be on, I guess. But they're mm-hmm. they've already been there, and they're you know to me I always say it was like Bob walked out of you know the, the back <laughs> and he's, he's like six six and was like hey how's it going <laughs> and I thought like hey how how long does it take you guys to do these drawings and he said uh, I think he said like three months you know and yeah. for you and I I think it was like three hours at the academy was a long drawing and I didn't know what to do at the end of it after two right yeah so it was. And I still had the ego at that time, so I was like, oh, I'll give it a shot, and it, I guess I'll knock the drawing out in like a day or two, and then show these people that you can draw <laughs> faster. <laughs> but then I learned how to just slow down, and then yeah. why they slow down and do the way they, they do it. But but I also found a skill set that like I can go fast or slow now. Mm-hmm. So I, I find both, both are great. What I, I mean, tell people is that you have to push, you have to push that far to understand how you can do it faster or to have a, a deeper understanding mm-hmm. of what you're doing when you do it faster, when you sort of, um, you know, oh, what's the right word? Um, but when you're sort of editing the process, right? You, you only yeah, you have a much absolutely. deeper understanding of, of what to edit and th- what things to sort of and how exactly how to convey more information with less. I think the only way you get you really get there is by going all the way, going deep, doing a drawing that takes months, um, and just pushing past all these barriers that you've going farther and farther than you've ever gone before, and right. and, and um. Yeah, I, I actually say that in the book a couple times. One of the things I say is to, uh, you know, form can be described with kind of three values, maybe, or it could be described with a thousand, and and you would be seamless, right? You just see these beautiful transitions. Yeah. Um, but you could also, and that's actually my impetus for the book too, is to kind of give a a wide range of different images, everything from Weard to Monet to um, hyper-realist or, or, or maybe not hyper-realist, but um, someone like Anthony Wachula who has, you can't see a brush stroke and he's painting on a magnifying glass or Tony Sir and I, the trompe versus the brushy. Um, I can't tell somebody how they should paint, but right. here's the two poles. You figure yeah. out where in the middle you want to be. Yeah. And I, and I go back and forth. So my small paintings tend to be a little bit more on the brushier side and my bigger paintings tend to be tighter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm and I'm constantly. I need the both of them. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like all the training that I've had uh, just gets um, quenched by doing all these different versions of things. You know. Yeah, that's interesting because um, I, I'm the same way. In that I haven't totally let go of some of those things that I loved about the Academy of Art, right? And some of the things that I learned there, and and. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I'll, um, sometimes when I'm doing shorter, doing, I'll start figure drawing classes sometimes with like some five minute gestures and, um, 
course yeah sort of it's sort of my time to go back to those days and just do these like sort of continuous line drawings um that are yeah we did it remember yeah. when i came down and you were doing these um i mean at the oh, academy right. yeah, bar yeah, yeah. When I was, yeah yeah at, at the academy bar when i was in animation we were doing 30 second uh mm -hmm. gesture poses mm -hmm. and and it's like to go from that and then the other gamut is like yeah. 70 hour drawings right at water street oh, and then yeah. you, you don't want to give up right you don't want to give up each skill set so you keep them both sharp i found i found that they they one informs the other i really mm -hmm. um and and i didn't do those quick drawings for years i mean probably uh who i who knows i don't know probably 10 years i didn't do well maybe not but anyway a long time <laughs> between the academy it, of art and and i just i dropped it when i went to water street um because we never did it there and i and i sort of took on you know all of the the ethos of that and mm -hmm. i just said oh that's not important why would you do these you know super two minute drawings or whatever you know why would you do any of that? Does not going to amount to anything. But um, at some point, I started doing it again. I just really, really loved it, and really saw the value in just like cranking out a ton of drawings. And most of them, again, were crap. But there were some really ones that I really loved um, that came out of that, and it was just so much fun too to just move fast and think fast and make decisions fast. Yeah, I really, really make got a lot of. Michelangelo said to do a whole lot of finishes, you have to do a whole lot of starts. And yeah. that was actually, I, I learned that quote from Stephen Perkins when I was doing uh, huh. sculpture with him. Mm -hmm. But it's like, I when I was at Water Street, I was secretly, I guess, because nobody else wanted to do it, going to the uh, side of <laughs> illustrators on on Tuesdays to go yeah. uh, do quick figure drawing. Oh, yeah. I used to try to get some of those people in there to just go and, Go check out a, a show like an Omar Rockwell or J.C. Landacker, I remember, and everyone was like, "Nah, we're good. It's not real <laughs> art." And I thought, Aww, I mean, yeah, because yeah, I had come from this background that was like, be inspired by everything. Mm -hmm. You know, don't let people tell you what you should and shouldn't look at. And it was the same way I approached drawing. Is like, look, I like doing the sketchbook stuff, and I like doing the quick and the slow, and I like them all. And there are all these things that I just have to be able to do at all times. And uh, I choose when I want to do them, not somebody mm -hmm. else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's cool that you got back into it. And it's probably because you had spent so much time at the Academy because that's all we did. <laughs> well, I just, yeah, I always had a, 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 an appreciation for just beautiful line quality. And uh, I don't know. It just, I just, it was just a lot of fun. I guess that's probably really what it comes down to. Also, as I just thought it was just so much fun to do a fast figure drawing and 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 not put any pressure on it and just enjoy the the mm -hmm. enjoy the challenge of trying to get that whole figure in in that amount of time and 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 to do it as well as you possibly can and most of them are big misses but mm. so satisfying but when you hit you get a one. fire pit right. Oh man, yeah. It's yeah. just, um, yeah. Like it was Brisbane, just like right? it's absurd to it's absurd to say that this isn't important. Also, like you're looking and you're drawing and you're making, you're um, just having to having to sort of condense so much information in such a 
Um, and usually there's abbreviate. There's, yeah, abbreviate. Exact. That's the word I was trying to think of earlier. Thanks. Um, yes, to abbreviate the whole process in a way that still conveys a lot of information about, you know, getting the curvature of a thigh just right that it conveys form in that mm -hmm. tiny space and that tiny just yeah it was it's i don't know i love it uh so yeah i, I talk <laughs> about that in the book is like um it's almost like when you're listening to a lecture and you do your shorthand notes you're not writing every word down because you can't so you abbreviate the most important parts right mm -hmm. kind of like what you're doing in drawing where i mean look if you have 70 hours to do a drawing and you want to do it do it but there's also an impracticality, I think, that comes with that, depending on kind of your economic status. For me, I just couldn't yeah. do that. Yeah. So yeah. for me, I was like, I need I to be able to do both. Yeah. And I think, I think, I think that's really important. But again, going back to what we were saying earlier, I think it's so important to do those drawings. And, um, you know, I think when, if it's possible, you know, it's just, but if it's possible in a school setting to do to to have that long of a pose, I think there's you have to do it. There's no reason to not do it. You get there's so much value in it. Um, but right, Absolutely. You, you, once you're out of school, you, you um, almost no one has the luxury of spending that that long in a drawing. And so um, I think you you do that in school. You take all the information about form that you get out of it and, and, and everything that comes with it, the block in all the, in, all the block in information and, and mm -hmm. everything. I mean, you learn every single thing about drawing when you do those things and they're, they're absolutely crucial. Um, mm -hmm. And they inform and your quick drawings are going to be so much better because of it. I think. Absolutely. Um, yeah. um, so Todd, I got to wrap up. I'm sure my wife is mad at me right now for how much time I've spent in here. <laughs> uh, daughter is, of course, home from school. Everybody's home from school, so things have gotten much more intense on the home front. Um, but thanks so much for, for doing this, man. We could have gone on forever. There's one thing, Todd, that I have to know from you before we leave, and that's how heartbroken you are about Tom Brady leaving the Patriots. I don't know. I guess I was heartbroken. Um, and I still am because you'd want, always want to see someone like that finish with the team. But you know what? Joe Montana didn't finish with his team. Brett Favre went on to a bunch of wacky teams like the Jets <laughs> and the Vikings. Um, That's right. Brady, Brady, yeah, Brady's going to be 43. Um, That's crazy. It's crazy that he's still so valuable. I I don't – I think he is, but I think – What do that, you think it's um, going to be like under – My life went quick. It, it, I mean, we'll find out how much, but it's, it's hard to tell too. I mean, I was going to say we'll find out how much. Obviously, it was 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 him or the team that 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 was put together well, around him and the coaching. Well, and, the the talk now is: Have you read much about it? Is that Belichick? When Belichick got the call from San Francisco to get a quarterback, they wanted yeah. Garoppolo, and he said, "Would you take Brady?" Right, and they were kind of like, "Wow." Now, I, I thought Brady was going to go there to finish his career, and I wouldn't feel so bad because he's from uh, San Mateo, I believe. Oh, really? Or somewhere around there. Yeah, uh -huh. somewhere in the uh, in the Bay Area. Yeah. Now, I wouldn't want that to happen, just like I don't want to see Tom Brady in a Tampa Bay Buccaneers uniform. But the other part of me is like, 
Um, I forget that Tampa Bay even has a football team. That's how bad they are. <laughs> you know, like the Miami Dolphins yeah, are been pretty overlooked irrelevant. so much. Yeah. But yeah. the Buccaneers, I, I go back to uh, like Tech Mobile and, and, yeah. and uh, Nintendo and think like, oh, yeah, that's right, Tampa Bay has a team. Yeah. I don't remember the Patriots ever even playing them. I don't think they <laughs> can't remember them ever going to the playoffs. Um, I think he's just doing it right now. I, I think a couple of reasons because he wants to show these relevant relevance, but 30 million a year for a 43 year old soon to be quarterback. That's insane. I man. think it's too much, but you know, he also took a pay cut. So I don't, I don't <laughs> I, I understand. He took a pay cut so many years to be there. So no, that's he needs true. to get that's paid. True. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Tom Brady I don't know finally to needs to go and make some money. I mean, these guys make all their money off their endorsements anyway, yeah. so he's made plenty, especially with TB12, which is his line of clothing and workout and all that stuff. But I, I wish him the best. Uh, I'll definitely miss. I actually met him when I was a waiter in uh, New York at Plaza Hotel. Oh, that's awesome. I met him twice. Him and Adam Vinatieri came in after they like beat Miami, and. um he was the nicest dude in the world. That's awesome. So I, I'm happy for that dude. Um, sad that we we didn't keep him, but it's uh, it's a business. <laughs> He's got it's just like you I guys. Was, he gave you six Super Bowls. What else could he do? I know, and he went to nine. I mean, That's as insane, a New England man. sports fan, insane. He's won more Super Bowls than the Cowboys as a franchise have. I can't believe you guys aren't better, but whatever. You, yeah. Didn't you re-sign Dak Prescott? I don't know. I They're trying. I don't think it's happening. Oh, yeah, that's right. It was offered to something, and he didn't take it. I don't know. All this Every money, day goes by, it gets more expensive for them, so they need to just get it done. But like $20 million versus $30 million, and then you're getting all these other deals, and you've had, you had 20 years of being in the NFL. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not in his shoes, so it's hard to say. But I wish him the best. Such an awesome dude. Tom will be all right. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Todd. Uh, thanks, man. It was so fun. We'll talk All right. Again. Thanks again for having me. Yeah, man. Later. Take care. Thanks again to Todd Casey for another great conversation. Head over to Amazon or wherever you buy books and get yourself a copy of Todd's The Art of Still Life. You will be happy you did. Also, type in Ray's Contemporary contemporary Galleries on your computer and check out Todd's recent paintings and go ahead and purchase one for yourself while you're there. And as always, I would love it if you left a review for this podcast in iTunes and an eight and a quarter star rating. Thank you so much for listening. I will talk to you again soon.